Wednesday. So that's all good. And um, so <laughs> Prue looks so happy. Did you did you play softball over break? How'd you do? <laughs> so yes. I did really well. Good. And Emery showed up here and uh-huh. like cleaned the floor with us. Yeah. So it was a little rough, but it was senior day, so everyone was all like upset and crying. And, oh. Like, that's how it always is. Yeah. Were the non-seniors upset and crying? No, I I was like trying not to cry. Yeah. I'm but, not a crier. No, I know, but people are leaving. Day always gets me. It's like, yeah. You grapple with your own. Yeah. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's it's another instance. Check out this segue of hyperbolic discounting. As time gets slow and as the um, end of things approaches, kind of like the end of a book, then the distinction between long term, which is well, we lost today, but the team is together, or yay, we won today. Um, and the long term doesn't matter, but we won today and it's the last game, then the long and the short term are the same thing, right? I mean, we're not completely screwed. Oh, okay. Of, like, playoffs, but, like, everyone was upset because everyone's a bunch of... Like, they were, like, doing, like, burpees in their hotel room. They're really crazy. They're, like, a softball cult. And also, <laughs> they, like, they win the conference every year. And they accused us of, like, filming their bullpen. Because they have, like, a video Because Boston... <laughs> yeah, but like they have to hardwire it to a pole, like the Wi-Fi to a pole in center field, uh-huh. and it has like a computer out there. Yeah. And the Wi-Fi kept cutting out, so the person who runs it was like, "Why does this computer keep getting unplugged?" And after like five or six times of it getting unplugged, like the Emory coach calls him over and she's like, "You're filming our bullpens," and he's like, "Have you seen our field? Do you think we have money for a seat?" <laughs> <Did, laughs> like, but would that be illegal? It's not like stealing signs. It would be. I, I don't know. I think it's it just would be illegal. everyday scouting. But their bullpen is visible, right? I mean, if you really want to look at it, you could look at it from under the windscreen on the other side of the field. Yeah. Like, you should do it. But I was like, wow. You should say, good idea. Yeah. All right, well, sorry. They're just really weird. Emery. And their coach is like. Anyone from the South in this class? You are. Okay, yeah, the South. I love the South, whatever. Coach, like, There's nothing weird about the South at all. Where are you from? Wait, remind me. Um, Miami. That's not the South. Yeah. yeah no, no. I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm talking about the South. You know, like Charleston or Georgia or something like that. No, 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 no. Miami is like, like if you were the Florida Panhandle, maybe that would count because that should really be Alabama. That's okay. Jacksonville is like the southern border of the South. After that, you get into like. I know. I always call North Florida South Georgia. But like, yeah, North Florida, but but you're south of North yeah. Florida. Yeah, or South I'm, Alabama. I'm yeah. more south than the south. Yeah, yeah. that and that's when, according to the great um, his philosopher of history or historian, no, he wouldn't be a historian of philosophy. Um, Jean Baptiste Vico. This is where um, extremes meet, where things flip to their opposite. So. Um, yeah, no, that's not the South. Okay, yeah, we just so you know, we love the South. It's all good. Um, Emory, just, you know, ideal. <laughs> Their coach was, like, screaming, too. Really? She sh- physically shoved one of her kids out of the dugout. Wait, like, so, so, like, how does she compare to the Brandeis basketball coach? Well, at least she's not racist. <laughs> that you know. That I know, well. Well, no, why, yeah. She's just, like, 
just like really crazy. Okay. All right. And angry. Short and she wears. Wait, like, short. She wears. <laughs> Wait, so, so, okay, so here, I'm going to try another segue. So that's kind of like Hobbes, who talks about human life as owner. Yes, that's Hobbes's definition of human life without social, um, uh, without a social contract. Um, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Um, so that, that's what society gives you, is that some of those things are, to some extent, tempered. Um, Thomas Pynchon, in his novel Gravity's Rainbow, has a law firm named Solitary, Poor, Nasty, Brutish, and Short. Um, it's a good name for a law firm. Uh, all right. Yes, you want to get one more thing off your chest, Prue? No, oh, that's I, just, like, I you don't do. think that would like, attract a lot. <laughs> a lot in pension won't attract a lot of clients. <laughs> that's not that's not the number one thing that's going on in pension. Um, if only he wrote more about money, we could have talked about pension in this class, but we can't. Um, all right. Um, other people have good breaks. Isn't it fun to come back for one more week of classes and then exams? Not even a week. Not even a total week of classes. It's like you're so psyched now. It's like you've recharged your batteries and you could really go on for another six weeks and it's sad that it's only a week. So here again, we are looking, <laughs> we are looking at um, how hyperbolic discounting, what happens when um, the short term and the long term are both short term. And um, your experience of the difference between the ending when you're looking at it, okay, we can start now. Um, your experience at, um, of where the ending is when the um, ending is no longer a long time from now, but is um, a short time from now, so short and long term are beginning to overlap and to coincide. And that is where we are in this semester. So, all right, that's what we were talking about um, at the, in the last class before vacation. And one of the things we were talking about then is the relationship of that to the MacGuffin. And do you guys remember Chekhov on the Loaded Gun? Anyone? Is this not ringing? Yes. It's, um, that there's a gun in the first act of the play. It has to be shot in the second. Yeah, so Chekhov, it, it's actually, it's hard to find what he actually said. And that's how it's, that's the meme in which it's, it's uh, spread, but that's not quite accurate. Um, but the basic idea, Chekhov said, if you know, he actually said it twice, but the, uh, probably the better version is that if in a story there's a loaded gun in chapter one, we find out reading a story that there's a loaded gun in chapter one, what that means is it has to go off in chapter two. In fact, it doesn't usually go off in chapter two, it goes off in chapter last. But if there's a gun that's, well, no, sometimes it can go off in chapter two, but if there's a gun that's loaded in chapter one, it has to go off. So just imagine you're reading a story and the story is, um, John was proud of his brand new gun. He was so glad that open carry allowed him to own it. Um, he was proud of being a southerner where open carry laws um, allowed freedom. And um, 
it was true that he had a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old child at home, but he knew that he could hide it in the back of the closet and they would never find it because they were so young that they would never snoop in their parents' closet. So he got home from work that day and put the gun in the back of the closet and then went out drinking with his buddies. End of chapter one. So are you worried about anything? Really, what? <laughs> what could possibly worry you? It's all He's good. Drive drunk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he won't have a gun when some officious cop pulls him over for driving drunk. He won't be able to scare the officious cop away. It's awful. Um, is that what you were worried about, Abigail? Yeah, just that. Yeah, okay. So everyone is worried. Yeah. Yeah, no, he would, he would load it in case. The point is, he loaded the gun and put in the... Sorry, I, I left that sentence out. Um, That's what I'm concerned about, that he didn't load it. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God, the gun isn't loaded. Oh, no. What if no's. someone tries to rob them and the nine-year-old can't defend himself? Wait, say it again. What if someone tries to rob them and because the gun isn't loaded, the yes. nine-year-old can't yeah. defend themselves? Yes. Home alone, but I know there's a gun in the closet, and I know I'm in an exciting story where the kid wins, so all I have to do is grab the gun. He didn't load it, Dad! <laughs> um, okay, so the point is you all get what's going to happen. And um, what Chekhov is basically pointing out is that when there is a loaded gun, the audience knows even if we don't want to know, even if, we're, even if in some um, strange... Uh, um, some, some strange aspect of our reader psychology is one of denial. You all know this experience where someone um, worries a little bit about something in an intense narrative, like, um, okay, this should all work fine. Um, the only thing I'm worried about is that I was having a little trouble with um, the motor this morning, but um, I think I figured it out and I just switched up spark plugs, so I'm pretty sure it'll be fine. And you, we all know the experience of um, saying, oh, well, that doesn't sound like a big deal. It'll probably be fine. Whereas what we're suppressing and repressing in ourselves is our knowledge that there is no reason for that moment to be in the story unless things are going to go wrong, right? So um, we want to believe the good judgment or the expert judgment of someone who thinks it'll probably be okay but it's a piece of fiction, and there's no reason for there to be the possibility of something going wrong unless, that, unless there's going to be a payoff for that possibility later. Right? Does that, can anyone come up with other examples of that? Just from anything. There's this Star new move. Yeah, what's they, an example? They say they have this planet-destroying superweapon, so you know they're going to destroy a planet with it. Right. Okay, so, so that's definitely a loaded planet-destroying planet superweapon. Um, it's like, yeah, we have this planet-destroying superweapon. Luckily, um, the good guys stop it from ever being used. Um, or luckily, the works are a little bit gummed up. Um, but also, what, but I'm, I'm talking about another specific thing, which is when there is a possibility of something going wrong, and we are hoping 
that the that the majority or the experts who think it's probably not a big deal are right. Have you ever read or seen anything where it's possible that something will go wrong, but people are saying it's probably nothing? You know, just say you're watching a medical drama. Doctor, doctor, um, I have this strange cough. Um, could you could you just listen to my lungs? And the doctor listens and says, well, you know, it's probably nothing. Um, is it going to be nothing? Does anyone think it's going to be nothing? Anyone see a serious man? So what happens in a serious man? At like the very beginning, he goes into the doctor, and the doctor's like, oh, I'm sure it's fine. And then he gets like a phone call at the end that it's like very bad. Yeah, so he goes to the doctor, and the doc he's just having a medical checkup, and the doctor says, you're fine, everything checks out. I'll give you the results of the x-rays when I get them in three weeks, which is not a long time to wait for x-rays, but um, he says, um, I'll give you the results of the x-rays when I get them. Um, so that's like in the first five minutes of the movie. Um, so um, we know at that point, don't we? Didn't you? That I was like, well, because then they don't bring it up yes. throughout the entire rest of the movie, so I completely forgot about it. Yeah, that. I know, the Coens are great at that. And then like, it got to the very end, and I was like, oh my god, is it, like, is it fatal? Yeah, and the answer is yes. Um, has anyone seen a series, man? Anyone else? Okay, so these are spoilers, but um, it's a reasonable spoiler for um, a question that I'm, I'm going to ask you another game theory question towards the end of class today that you can think about, you can write about if you, if you like as well, um, which is something called Newcomb's Problem or Newcomb's Paradox. Um, which I think A Serious Man is actually about. But basically, so you know the plot. Does anyone mind the spoiler? Um, since, you know, it turns out that the x-ray does not have good news. That would be the spoiler. Um, but if you're watching it, what will frequently happen, and A Serious Man is a good example of that, is if everything is fine but we're waiting for one more result, we all know that in a narrative, this is very disturbing, that this is something to be anxious about. Um, in real life, it's usually the case that you're not that anxious about it. That is, if the doctor says, everything checks out, I'll say, um, you'll get the blood test results tomorrow, um, but everything looks fine, you're going to leave the doctor's office relieved. Not 100% relieved, but 99% relieved. And um, you're going to wait for that last 1% um, when you get the, the results of the blood test. Um, and you may be a little bit anxious about it, but you'll also tell yourself you're being way too anxious about it, right? Have, has everyone had some version of that experience? If you haven't, you're either very lucky or very optimistic. Um, so in a movie, if there's a 1% chance of something going wrong, then we are going to want to be much more relieved than we can get ourselves to be. And um, so what happens in A Serious Man, it's another really good example of short and long-term thinking and anxiety and desire for what's going to happen. What's the relation, just think about this for a second, what's the relation of anxiety and desire? How do they relate to each other? Think of a situation where you have a desire and where you're anxious. <coughs> what would you desire? Yeah? You want something, but then 
Mm -hmm. And is it that like you're you're anxious that you're not going to win the lottery? Is that how you feel? So let me let me ask this in a way that brings three things together, um, and might also be a kind of self-answering question. What is the relation t between anxiety, desire, and loss aversion? Remember we talked about loss aversion the week before last. Someone define loss aversion quickly. That you'd rather, you'd rather, it's, people are more likely to, people want to not lose things that they already have more than they want to get that same thing. Right. And the basic statistic is that, the, ba the, 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 Baseball proverb is losing, and the poker proverb is losing feels worse than winning feels good. And uh, the basic uh, psychological, experimental psychological um, measurement of how much worse losing feels than winning feels good is um, about two to one. Uh, losing feels about twice as bad as winning feels good. So, in order um, for you to make a bet on something, the winning would, and risk something that's your own, the winning would have to be about twice as much as what you might be about to lose. Uh, do people know the empty envelope, the two envelopes paradox? Does this, um, anyone know this? Okay, so I give you two, I, get, I have two envelopes. I'm just telling you this. I have two envelopes. And what I'm telling you, which is true, I'm not telling you how much money is in either of them, but what I'm telling you, which is true, is that one envelope contains twice as much money as the other. So one envelope has X amount of money, and another envelope has 2X amount of money. So I give you an envelope randomly. I just pick an envelope and I hand it to you. And I say, do you want to trade envelopes? So do you? So. Would you trade envelopes under those conditions or not? Is there any reason to do it? So think about it. If you trade envelopes, let's say there's X in the envelope I gave you. If you trade envelopes with me, the envelope that I have might contain only one half of X, right? Or it might contain two X. You don't know what the X is. I think that's important for this. But if we trade envelopes, then you are risking half of what's in your envelope because you might have the envelope that has X and I might have the envelope that has one half X. So you're risking half of what's in your envelope in order to trade with me, but the payoff would be twice what's in your envelope. So the payoff is twice the risk. You're only risking half of what's in your envelope, but the payoff is twice what's in your envelope. So if you have the envelope that has half, that has the smaller amount of money, you could double it. If you have the envelope that has larger amount of money, you'd only lose half of it. If the amount of money is X, then you're risking one half X on a 50-50 chance of getting two X. So shouldn't you do that? Wouldn't you risk 50 cents on a 50, if you have a dollar, wouldn't you risk 50 cents of that dollar on a 50-50 chance of getting two dollars? Flip a coin, and if you lose, you 
lose 50 cents. If you win, you win a dollar on the flip of a coin, right? So wouldn't, ev wouldn't everyone do that rationally? Yes, no? Yes. Okay, so um, given that, that's where you are with two envelopes, right? You would be risking half of what's in your envelope, assuming you have the larger amount, in order to get a potential gain of twice what's in your envelope, and there's a 50-50 chance that you have the smaller and a 50-50 chance that you have the larger. So shouldn't you switch envelopes? Is there any argument against switching envelopes? Are you guys understanding this? Are you finding this, like, if you're, if you're not finding this a hard and weird situation, you're not understanding it. So does everyone feel they understand it? No, just run the numbers. I mean, there's no reason not to switch, but I feel like if you switch and then it ends up being, like, you lose money doing it, you're going to feel worse. Oh, yeah, no, you'll feel worse, but um, you might also feel that um, it's still the rational thing to do because you, are, you have a two-to-one payoff on a 50-50 chance. Even if you lose on a two-to-one payoff, you know, Trump only had an 8% chance of winning and he won, um, that doesn't mean that he had higher than an 8% chance of winning. It means that the 1 in 12 chance that he would win um, came, came through for him. Yeah, what were you going to say? But you also have the same odds if you don't switch. So there's How's that? Because you don't know what's in it. Yeah. So it's... There's, like, there's no reason not to switch. There's also no reason to switch. You, you don't know any of the details. All you have is an envelope. Yeah, so, so not... So might, you, might, you just might as well keep what you have as switching. Okay, so, but, so you're making an argument from a totally different direction. Um, but if you do it purely numerically, yeah. and I actually think that argument is wrong, but if you do it purely numerically, um, I think it's right in the real world, but wrong in a mathematical world. But if you do it purely numerically, you are risking half of x at a chance for 2 times x. So you're risking, if it turns out that x is $10, you're risking $5, just $5 for a chance for $20. So that's a 2 to 1 payoff. Or make it a 10 to 1 payoff. So you're risking $10 for a chance at $100. You're risking $5, rather, um, for a chance at $50, let's say. No, at, I'm sorry, at $100. So you risk half of what you have. No, that doesn't work. You're risking $9, I'm sorry, for a chance at $100. Um, so who, and it's a 50-50 chance. Who wouldn't bet $9 on a flip of a coin? If, would anyone not bet $9, assuming all dollars were um, equally valuable for a chance for $100 and on a flip of a coin? Is there anyone here who wouldn't? Depends how much I need those nine. No, that's why I'm saying all dollars are equally valuable. That's why I'm specifying that all dollars are equally valuable to you. You, you can't need the nine dollars. If you say they're equally valuable, which is always assumed, um, I mean, it's always mentioned, but always assumed when you do economic um, utility weighing. So you don't talk about marginal utility. You say, imagine that all the money is equally valuable. So it's not like, I really need the $9 because that will get me um, a ticket to, um, that, that will get me to the airport in time for my plane. 
whereas $100 will get me to the airport in time for my plane, plus I can buy a little airport sushi with the rest of it. Um, the airport sushi isn't as important to you, I hope, as making it to your plane on time. But if you assume that all dollars are equally valuable, um, which they're not, but assume they are, I'm going to give you an example where all things are equally valuable when we do newcomes in a little while. Um, but if all things are equally valuable, then you're risking $9 on a 50-50 chance to get 100 Would Who wouldn't do that bet? Is there anyone who wouldn't do that bet if all dollars were equally valuable? Would, okay, if you would do the bet, raise your hands. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, um, so that's a version of the same thing. That is, uh, <coughs> flip the coin, and the payoff is twice the, um, p the potential loss. The potential gain is twice the potential loss. And by switching envelopes, that's what you're doing. You could lose half of what's in your envelope to begin with. You could get twice what's in your envelope to begin with. So you should do it. But then I say to you, after you switch the envelope, what am I going to ask you? Do you want to switch? Yeah, don't you want to switch? Because? Then you're, it, it will probably make you second-guess yourself because you're put in the same exact situation. Again. Yeah, you're put in the same exact situation again. And once again, there is um, a 50-50 chance that after you switched, I got the higher envelope and you got the lower one. And now if you switch again, then you are betting half of what's in your envelope, whether it's higher or lower, versus twice what's in your envelope. And um, so there's no place where you wouldn't switch. We would switch, and then we'd switch again. We'd be back where we started, and then we'd switch again, and you could do this infinitely. There's never any time you would be satisfied with your envelope if you had a chance to switch. So this game would never end, and you would die of hunger because the airport sushi would be sold out. And um, you would, there would never be any reason not to switch. So this drives some people crazy, um, this question about what to do with the two envelopes. But it's a way of um, seeing that um, if you're not quite sure you're going to switch, it's partly because the general rule is that losing feels twice as bad as winning that um, losing feels worse than winning feels good. And um, switching envelopes, you're losing what is in your envelope, which is a sure thing, at a chance for doubling what's in your envelope, which is not a sure thing. Um, and uh, if you don't switch, it could be because of loss aversion. OK, so loss aversion and um, desire and anxiety, how do they go together? In real life, when you're about to open, when you're about to check out what your grades are for the semester, yeah. Well, like, I remember when I was applying to colleges, like, I suddenly was like, I'm not going to get into any of the schools I applied to. Like, mm -hmm. I got really anxious because I wanted to get into them. Okay, so you had a preference, which is to get into... Yeah, I don't mean what was your preference. <laughs> of course it was this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you had a preference and you had an anxiety, so you wanted to go... Um, your preference was to get into a college and to get into the college of your choice, and your anxiety was that you wouldn't. Um, okay, what? but there, there isn't really loss aversion because there's nothing that you had that you might lose. Stay with my 
Yeah. Yeah, but Get state of maybe. <laughs> yeah, but but that's not that's loss aversion is um, why your state of mind would change. In other words, state of mind is um, a hope is a way of describing preference rather than than the thing that you might lose. But what are we most averse to losing in life? Four letter answer. What? Yeah, life is a thing you're most averse to losing. Um, when you bargain, have you guys ever done this where you're really worried about something and you kind of bargain with um, fate, um, which is something like, um, I don't know, take something uh, inno relatively innocuous in um, a person's own life, which is, uh, I don't know, um, look, it's okay, God, it's okay if Trump doesn't win as long as some Republican wins. Remember, this is a completely politically neutral class, so I have to go both ways. I, you've noticed that, right? You have no idea what my politics are. So it's okay, God. It really is okay if Trump doesn't win. You know, of course I want Trump to win. It's okay if he doesn't win, as long as some Republican wins. Um, so that would be a relatively neutral version of that. But maybe that's a, a relatively innocuous version of it. Um, but, you know, think about worrying about a grade. So have you guys ever worried about grades? Because you should now. No. <laughs> have you guys ever worried about grades? And have you ever, like, bargained in your head about that worry? Like, um, you really want a good grade like a B plus? Oh, my God. <laughs> Look at you guys. You really want to show that you've done incredibly well in the class and get a B plus, maybe even, that high a grade? <laughs> yeah. Are you happy with B pluses? No. In general? Okay, that's that would be the joke. B plus is like new C. B plus is new C. I I feel like you you guys are trying to steer me by saying that. <laughs> International relations, man. Okay, so you're really worried about how you did on the exam. You don't know what the curve is going to be like and you know that you didn't study as much as you should have and that you didn't read Roxana even though your professor at one point mentioned very softly that it would be on the final. And um, <laughs> um, so you blew it, but you also know that everyone else might have blown it too. And so you say to yourself something like, I really want an A on this, but if I get an A minus, it'll be okay, or if I get a B plus, it'll be okay, but please don't let it be a C, right? Do you do that kind of bargaining with anything? Um, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> is, there any, is there anyone who doesn't do that kind of bargaining in some part of their lives? Like, it's okay, I mean, it, it often happens in medical situations, like, it's okay if it's TB, but don't let it be lung cancer. Um, like, you know, having TB is really terrible, but having lung cancer is a lot more terrible. So, you know, you go in with a cough, and the likelihood is that you can't get rid of, and the likelihood is that it's nothing, but you worry. And your worry might take the form of you're already deciding that you'll be relieved if it's TB, 
even though what you should be hoping and you are hoping is that it's nothing at all, that it's just a cold. But if you go in and you decide you're going to be relieved if it's just TB, that's loss aversion. What you're doing is you're going to um, allow yourself to lose a bit, which is having to be treated for TB, in order not to lose everything, um, which is, um, if, as, as Jimmy says, which is if it turns out to be your life itself because it's lung cancer. So is this a familiar um, experience for people? Okay, so anxiety has to do with loss aversion. You're worried about how much you're going to lose. And then preference is going to often <coughs> take the form of, or desire is going to take the form not to win everything, but to lose as little as possible given the fact that it looks like you have to lose something. And that's like anteing in poker. Um, you may want to, you may play to lose as little as possible, which means that you risk a lot of money not to lose your sunk costs. Um, but again, the idea is anxiety is anxiety about loss. Preference then will go, or desire, will be a desire to cut losses, to make your loss something that won't be too painful, rather than to get a gain. So what happens in a serious man, so here are the spoilers, close your ears if you don't want to hear them, um, is that at the very beginning there's a professor, see, who is grading a student who has written a real POS paper. Um, POS is a term of art among the professoriate. I can't tell you what it stands for because you're too young. But, um, but it is um, a POS, a fuck. And um, the uh, professor is um, going to fail the student, and the student's father basically offers the professor a gigantic bribe to give the student a good grade. And uh, the professor says, no, there's no way he's going to do this. Um, and this is right after he's gone to see the doctor. And the doctor says, we'll have the x-ray. You know, everything looks fine. I wouldn't worry about it. We'll have the x-ray results um, for you in three weeks. And um, then things go worse and worse and worse and worse and worse for this professor. And at the end, he's in desperate, desperate, desperate need for money. And um, there's just no way out of his need for money. It's terrible how much he needs money. And, you know, things have gone terribly in his life, um, and it's awful how much he needs money. Um, I should say also that this is the first Coen Brothers movie that um, used one of my high school classmates, who's now um, a member of the Coen Brothers uh, repertory. Um, this was the first movie he appeared in. So um, that's how cool I am. Someone I went to high school with was in this movie. Bet you didn't know that. So, sorry? Which person? Um, uh, Fred Malamud. Um, he looks much older than me. Don't look him up. Um, he is much older than me. That's what I mean. He's much older than me. So, um, he's, you've seen it, right? Yeah. He's the guy who gets killed when they go yeah. around the curve? Yes. Right. Um, another unimportant spoiler. Um, he has a funny death. <laughs> so... Um, so at the end of the movie, the main character is in desperate need for money. And um, he's sitting at his desk, and then he remembers 
the bribe. And um, so he picks up the exam of the guy who's gotten an F, and he erases the F and puts an A on it. And so now he's done the wrong thing. Um, but he does it in order to get the money. He's compromised his principles in order to get the money. And the next thing that happens is... Like the second he changes the grade, the phone rings, and it's the doctor telling him he's got like some terrible, terrible... Yeah. So what's happened is he's made a... So what we know watching it, and what makes sense of it, even though we've forgotten the x-ray, because it's been two hours since it's mentioned, and it doesn't seem to have come back. But what happens is that's when that gun goes off. The loaded gun is the result of the x-ray. Something still has to come out that we don't know what it is. So the loaded gun is the result of the x-ray. And it's only at the end that that gun goes off. But it goes off as a narrative result, not a real-life causal result, but a fictional world narrative result of his deciding to change the grade. As soon as he does that, he's done the wrong thing. And as soon as he does that, the story punishes him for it. Obviously, the x-ray can't change thing, can't change given the fact that it was taken three weeks earlier. It's not the case that in some real world what goes on in the x-ray would have changed. But in a story world, things happen in stories when you find out what's happening. That's when they actually happen. Unlike stories about the real world where, and it turned out that he was my uncle and I didn't even recognize him, if you're telling that kind of story about the real world, whether you recognized him or not, he was your uncle. But in a story, the storyteller makes something true at the moment that it is narrated. Up until that point, it may not be true. A famous example of this is Hitchcock's movie, since we're talking about MacGuffins, Hitchcock's movie Suspicion. Do people know about that? Cary Grant, who is the greatest film actor um, in the history of film, and um, he is playing, you know, he is playing um, a um, possible gold digger, a possible um, um, fortune hunter who gets married. Do you know it? Suspicion? Uh, vaguely. Okay. Well, so here's more, more of a spoiler, but it's okay. So Cary Grant marries um, a rich, uh, mousy woman. And um, she is amazed that, my God, Cary Grant, you guys all know that Cary Grant is like the bomb, right? <laughs> See, I'm really with it. Um, he's like da bomb, D-A bomb. OMZ is such a bomb. All right. Um, so um, he marries this mousy woman who's got a lot of money. And she's so grateful that he loves her. And she's basically so um, not um, charismatic or powerful or deep or thoughtful or, or I don't know. Um, she, she's basically so little the kind of person that Cary Grant would marry that she doesn't even get that it's weird that Cary Grant would marry her. Um, that's how out of it she is. And um, however, he keeps doing these suspicious things. 
Um, he's like writing checks on her bank account and he is disappearing for a while and he is investigating um, how various poisons work and whether um, those poisons would leave a trace that a pathologist could find and he's watching lots of episodes of SVU and he seems to be figuring out all sorts of ways to um, kill someone that you've just married and inherit their money and he's, put, he's buying large insurance policies on her life, and he's doing all sorts of suspicious things. And even she can see it after a while, but she loves him and she wants to trust him, and when her friends say, you know, he's doing these weird things, she keeps explaining it away. And Hitchcock does something really remarkable, which is that at the end of the movie, um, so the, the most famous shot in Suspicion, which you may have seen um, even if you don't know the movie, is Cary Grant walking up a flight of stairs carrying a glass of milk. And uh, the glass of milk, if you see it, it's r radiant, it's luminous, it's the only thing you can see. I mean, you can see him, but the glass of milk just fixes all our attention. And in fact, what Hitchcock did was he painted a glass white inside and then put a large light bulb inside the glass so that when he's walking up the stairs, it looks like a glass of milk, but it's all you can look at. The reason he did that is because the milk may or may not be poisoned. She's been sick for a while. And the question is, is she sick because her husband is poisoning her slowly, or is she just sick, and is he caring for her? So when he's bringing this glass of milk upstairs, we don't know whether he is trying to kill her or trying to help her with a glass of milk. And he's got this wonderful, enigmatic Cary Grant smile on his face, um, which is either, I'm going to kill you, or... Um, I really love you, and I'll do anything for you. We just can't tell. Um, Cary Grant is kind of the Mona Lisa of, of um, movies. And um, so she has written a letter to her lawyer saying, if I die, you have to investigate my husband. Um, I'm supposed to be getting better, but there's a possibility that he's poisoning me. Don't open, and on the envelope it says, don't open this unless I die. Um, and then she puts that in another envelope and addresses it to her lawyer. And he brings the milk upstairs, and um, she says to him, um, oh, darling, are you going out? Could you mail this letter? And he says, certainly. And he gives her the milk um, and then turns away with a really um, now very malicious smile on his face. Um, and she drinks it and dies, and he's happy about this, and he's whistling, as he walks out of the house and drops the letter in the mailbox, and that's the end of the movie. So we know he's going to get caught, that he just thought he was going to get away with it, but he's going to get caught. Um, because just out of you know pure um, giddiness that he's won, he sees no reason not to mail this letter that she asked him to mail. And what Hitchcock did, which was very daring, was to um, um, make Cary Grant a villain. And Cary Grant liked playing against types, so the idea that he would be this villain, you know, he is the, he is America's heartthrob. It's like making Tom Cruise a villain, except Tom Cruise really is a Scientologist and so on. But it's making someone you really, really, really like into a villain and in a movie where you are sure that it's going to turn out that he's not a villain, um, because that's what we're sure is going to happen. 
Um, you know, like any mystery where someone is falsely accused, um, and it's just terrible that everyone thinks that this person is guilty when they're not, um, but at the end they get vindicated. So you're sure he's going to be vindicated, and then it turns out he's killing her. And um, so this was shown to a test audience in 1946, I think it was, and they just hated it. It was like they couldn't believe it, and when they filled out their surveys, it was like worst movie ever made. This is worse that you know. If Yelp had zero, I would give this a zero. Um, and just the test screening was terrible, terrible, terrible. And um, so David L. Selznick, the producer, said this is not going to work. So what Hitchcock had to do was come up with another ending. And in the other ending, every suspicious thing that Cary Grant has done gets explained away in a beautiful and noble way so that he turns out to be not only Cary Grant, but the deepest Cary Grant that we've ever seen. And he is just so good and so saintly and so self-sacrificing, and we just love him. And so in the second version, um, the ending explains everything, and it turns out he wasn't trying to poison her and that he had other reasons for investigating the way toxins worked, um, which I won't tell you what they are. But Hitchcock basically and his wife, Alma Hitchcock, um, came up with five minutes of script that totally explained everything. Now, the point is that at that moment where everything is explained, at that moment, that's when the milk was not poisoned. That's when he was investigating the effects of arsenic for a completely different reason. That's when he loved her all the time. So he didn't love her all the time throughout the movie. In fact, Hitchcock thought he didn't love her at all. But at the end, it becomes the case now, at this point in the narration, that he loved her throughout. So the point about fictional narration is that things become truths are truths even when they're discoveries about the past. They only become true about the past at the moment that they're narrated. There isn't a truth before that. And that is why when you go two hours in A Serious Man without um, the x-rays coming back, you just forget that there was anything in the x-rays. And then when he decides to change the grade, that then makes it the case at the instant that he decides to change the grade, that makes it the case that the x-rays were showed a fatal disease. And had he not decided to change the grade, you can imagine a test audience saying, Joel, Ethan, what are you doing? No, we love him too much. We don't, but we love him too much. Um, we need another ending. Then he would look at the grade, decide not to change it. The phone would ring, and the doctor would say, you have a totally benign but really, really interesting 
um, condition that will actually make you live a long time. I would like to write about this for the journal, the New England Journal of Medicine, and in order to secure your permission, I'm going to give you the $100,000 that uh, my grant has given me. So he wouldn't change the grade, and suddenly he'd get more money for doing the right thing. So you can imagine that as a different ending for a serious man, that he does the right thing even though he's in, in terrible trouble, and the result of doing the right thing is he's rewarded. Now, that can't affect the past because the x-ray was three weeks earlier, except narratively it does. At that moment, the x-ray becomes either benign or malign at the moment when we find out. That's the way narrative works. So um, if you think of it that way, then you can look at how anxiety and preference and loss aversion all squeeze together as you get to the end of a narrative. Okay, do the reading for next week. I'm going to give you, uh, I mean for Wednesday, and at the start of class on Wednesday, I'll give you the Newcombs, um, which we talked about in um, Thinking About Infinity. Do you remember it? So like alien. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, so we'll talk about that on Wednesday a little bit also. And the Maltese Falcon, which you are all finished now and ready for a quiz on, right? Yes? Vacation, reading mysteries, fun? Good. Okay, see you guys Wednesday. And you know Wednesday's our last class, right? Because Thursday's a Brandeis Friday. <laughs> no, Thursday's the last day of class. Brandeis Friday. Yeah. Like that's poetic, just...